I'm Emma. I'm Shannon. And welcome to This Podcast Doesn't Exist. We're two best friends who like talking about weird, unsolved, sometimes spooky, sometimes historical stuff. Mysteries. Things that we don't know anything about and then research during a week. (laughs) Yes. Thank you for that blurb, Shannon. You got it. That was great. You know, there might be new friends that are joining us. That's true. And I want them to feel included. I hope there are. And if you are new, very, very welcome to you. Um, I don't (laughs) know why. Very, very welcome. (laughs) Very, very welcome. Yep. Um... If you would like to play along with our bingo card, you can go to our Instagram and click in the link in the bio. Um, It should be the first thing that pops up, and then you just click on that, and it'll generate you a bingo card that you can play while you listen. And listeners who have been here for a while, if you haven't done that, go do it. Just tell us how, how it is. Are there any suggestions of things that you want us to put on there? Let us know. You can also, whether or not you're new, if you have anything to tell us, please email it to thispodcastdoesn'texist at gmail.com. We are also present on TikTok. We will be present on YouTube and Twitter. Um, We are building our social media empire. There we go. So just keep a lookout for us. I am working very hard. I'm so sorry I haven't done any more TikToks, Shannon. I'm fine. I know you're fine, but I feel like it's not fine. Oh, not not for you, but, like, just... It's okay. You know, know what? It's fine. Thanks, man. All right, so this... I know nothing of what's coming today, but yeah. it feels like a lot, so let's get into it. It is a lot. Um, this might be a bit of a longer episode, so um, I'm sorry, Clark, but it's going to be finished after you get back from the gym, babe. Double leg day. Yeah. You ever <laughs> see a tree without a trunk? What? Oh, you don't recognize that reference? No, I do not. Oh, it's an Anthony Mackie original. Oh, okay. Uh, he's known for his leg day. Okay. Never skip leg day. I didn't, uh, I wasn't aware. You see a tree without a trunk. Got it. Anyway. I understand it. Great. All right. Well. Should we buckle in? I think that just in terms of grounding yourself, because this is kind of sad, so I'm so sorry, you guys. Also, trigger warning, um, there are children involved. Nothing that is, like, confirmed has happened to them. Mm-hmm. Shannon has some ideas, obviously. I think I know what this is about. So this, my friends, is the Sauter family mystery. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep, Shannon guessed correctly. All right. <sighs> what? What did you just whisper? <laughs> I said... Fire! Yes, fire. <laughs> but I whispered it. <laughs> so that made it creepier. So, five out of ten beloved children died in a fire on Christmas Eve. Or did they? So let's get into the family. Go ahead and buckle into whatever you feel the need to buckle into. If it be a cute 1940s car, if it be a, you know, just a couch with a strap. Whatever you feel the need. Oh, that's what that strap is. There you go. (laughs) So, George and Jenny Sauter, both Italian immigrants, fell in love and settled outside of Fayetteville, West Virginia. George came to America when he was 13 and Jenny when she was three. Their home was a sweet two story farmhouse two miles from the main town. 
1923, their first child, John, was born. And 20 years later, in 1943, the last of their 10 children, Sylvia, was born. So that's a long expanse of time. But Italian Catholics, you're not gonna, you're not gonna not, right? You're not gonna not. By then, John was in his 20s, and their second child, Joe, had gone to fight in World War II. The family was well-known in the community, especially among their fellow Italian immigrants. There was a nice little small group of Italian immigrants within Fayetteville that they were really familiar with, were really good friends with. George's truck hauling company was prosperous, and they became a middle-class family of means, which bode well for the fact that they had ten children to take care of. George was, however, known for his very strong opinions, specifically when it came to Benito Mussolini. He was really not a fan of the dictator, but this created some rifts between him and the other immigrant families in the area who supported Mussolini. While his son Joe was off at war in 1944, Mussolini was deposed and executed. George made his feelings known even more after the dictator's death, and tensions grew with other families, particularly the men. Other than George's opinions, the family seemed in good standing with their fellow immigrants and the surrounding community. The kids went to school and had friends, Jenny seemed friendly with the local women, George's business was doing great, and they had a son fighting a war on America's side. So all was well. Now the incident. On Christmas Eve, 1945, the Sauter family celebrated as many families in the area did, and with ten children, the gifts were the most exciting part. The eldest daughter, Marion, who was 17, worked at a dime store in Fayetteville and so surprised three of her younger sisters with gifts she had bought. Apparently, these were new toys, but the, the toys themselves weren't described. It wasn't important at the time. Martha, 12, little Jenny, 8, and Betty, 5, were elated with the attention and the new toys. All of the younger children asked if they could stay up past their usual bedtime since it was a holiday. Jenny said, sure, around 10 p.m., on the promise that the two older boys awake, Maurice, 14, and Louis, 9, did their remaining chores of feeding chickens and putting the cows in, because they had, like, an actual farm. Not, like, crops or anything, but, like, they had animals. They promised, and Jenny went upstairs with Sylvia, 2, to join her husband, who was already asleep. The two oldest boys, John, 23, and George Jr., 16, who had been helping their father all day, were also already in bed. Joe was still overseas. At 12.30 a.m., the telephone rang downstairs. Jenny woke and went downstairs to answer it, but the unknown woman on the other line asked for a name that wasn't familiar, and Jenny was confused. She told the caller she had the wrong number, but remembered the, quote, weird laugh the woman had when she went to hang up. Jenny went to go back to bed, noticing that Marion had fallen asleep on the couch in the living room and she hadn't drawn the curtains or turned the lights out as she normally would have when she stayed up later than her parents. She also noticed that the door was unlocked. The other younger children, Jenny assumed, had gone up to bed in the attic where their rooms were. She shut the curtains, turned off the lights, locked the front door, and went back to bed. Poor Jenny wasn't allowed to sleep, apparently, and was woken again at around 1 a.m. by the sound of an object hitting the roof with a loud bang and rolling. She figured it was nothing, probably a bird or something, and went back to sleep. Another half hour passed before Jenny was woken once more, smelling smoke. She went to investigate and saw that the room George used as an office was in flames. 
Jenny woke her husband, grabbed Sylvia, who was sleeping between them, and George ran to get his older sons across the hallway, yelling for the other children as they went. There was no answer from the attic as they frantically tried to retrieve their children. The staircase to the attic was already engulfed in flames. George, Jenny, Sylvia, Marion, John, and George Jr. managed to escape. Marion ran to a neighbor to call the fire department as she had already tried before fleeing the house and the line had not worked, but the neighbor's phone wouldn't work either. A passing motorist had also stopped at a nearby tavern when he saw the flames, but their phone was unable to reach the operator as well. Eventually, a phone worked down the street and the fire department was called. George had a ladder that was always propped up against the house, and he went to go climb it to the attic window and found it missing completely. It hadn't fallen over. It hadn't been used on a different side of the house. It was nowhere to be seen. George wanted to use his trucks to climb and see if he could reach the attic window and grab his children or have them hop out to him, but neither truck would start, regardless of the fact that they worked the day before. So instead, he went into full dad mode and tried to climb the wall barefoot and broke open a window, cutting his arm as he did. He couldn't pull himself up further and heard no answer to his cries for his children inside and so had to scale back down. He didn't get too far because he was trying to hold on to like windows as he went um, and like anything that he put his arms on, but he couldn't get up to the attic window. Lastly, there was a water barrel, but it was frozen solid and unusable because this is December in West Virginia. Mm. The frustrated and devastated remaining Sodders had to watch their house collapse and burn for the next 45 minutes, assuming that their family was burning with it. Christmas morning dawned as the house crumbled to ash. The fire department, which was located only two miles away, didn't arrive on site until 8 a.m. But I'm sorry, someone's getting fired. Yeah, well, complications with the amount of manpower due to the war. The phone tree to get volunteers. And it's Christmas. It is a holiday. And waiting for someone who knew how to drive the fire truck left them much too late to help. And the chief admitted this. He was like, there was not a good enough system to help this family. And we apologize and we are going to fix it. Yeah, overhaul some systems, chief. Yeah. They could do nothing much other than sift through the ashes left in the basement. One of the firemen was a brother of Jenny's, which I just find absolutely devastating because he basically had to come to his sister's house to try and find the remains of his nieces and nephews, which I just, having nieces and nephews, like, I don't even have kids, but like, anything happened to those babies, I think I might like, I might die. I might die. I think I might die. Just letting you know. Just a bit of light interjection. Sorry, guys. This is a very, again, this is a sad one. I'm sorry. Well, there are a couple things later that are a bit like, huh? That we might be able to make some jokes about, but this initially is just going to be kind of sad. By 10 a.m., it was determined that evidence of the children could not be found. There were no bones in the rubble, nothing that would suggest that there were bodies there anymore. Chief F.J. Morris believed the children died in the fire, saying that the fire must have been hot enough to burn their bodies completely to ash. So Morris told George to leave the site alone until the fire department had a chance to do a more thorough investigation. But after four days and no investigation done, George and Jenny couldn't take looking at the rubble anymore. George put five feet of dirt over the wreckage and the family planted a flower garden in remembrance of their lost children and Jenny tended this garden for the rest of her life. 
The coroner's inquest decided that the fire was due to faulty wiring, and death certificates for the five children were issued on December 30th, mere five days after the fire. A funeral was held on January 2nd, 1946, but Jenny and George couldn't attend. They just couldn't get themselves to do it. Their remaining children, however, did. Yet, things still seemed a little odd about the situation. So leading up to the fire, there were a few instances that confused the Sodders and made them question the incident and what really happened to their children. A few months before the fire, in the fall, a stranger came to the home looking for hauling work in George's business. He made it around the back of the house with George and pointed to the two fuse boxes, saying, quote, that is going to cause a fire someday, end quote. George found this confusing, since he had just had the wiring checked by the local power company and they said it was in fine condition. They had just had the whole house rewired when they had an electric stove installed. So mm-hmm. I don't know if it was just like an idle, like, electricity. Blah. I don't know. This is like the 40s, so like, it's not necessarily new, but it's mm-hmm. this is a, rural, a mostly rural community. Mm-hmm. R- rural. It's a hard word, you guys. You speak English so good. Thanks, man. Around the time as this strange instance, a family life insurance salesman came to the house. Mm. Mm. Yeah, exactly. That noise. George declined his business and the man became angry. He said, quote, Your house is going up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. You're going to be paid for the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini. End quote. This man was apparently part of the later coroner's inquest. He was part of the jury. Isn't that odd? That feels like a conflict of interest. Right? Also, like, you're trying to sell life insurance. The guy just says no, and you're like, you're going to be paid for the fact that you talk about Mussolini. Like, obviously, you're a part of something else. Yeah. You're not just a life insurance salesman. You might not be an insurance salesman at all. Like, we don't even know you. Get out of my house. Mm. I don't, I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. The older sons remembered that just before Christmas, a man was parked along U.S. Highway 21, close to the Sauter home, watching the younger kids as they came home from school. Mm. Creepy. Like, Get a job. Seriously? <laughs> that Maybe that is his job. Watching children? It's the watcher. Oh, <gasps> uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Your whole face just... <laughs> wow, that was like a three-part opera all at once. That was great. I do like that. Just before or during the fire, there are conflicting reports. Neighbors reported a man stealing from the solder's detached garage. He was stealing a block and chain, which is part of a pulley system used for removing car engines, and later was charged with the crime. He also admitted to cutting an electrical line, but didn't admit to anything else regarding the fire. He never went to trial and was never publicly identified. So I'm not quite sure why it was reported on. What in the suspicious nonsense is this? Yeah. I don't like it. I don't. What, what were you going to say? Oh, I thought you were going... You you looked like you had something else to say. (laughs) No. I think it's just the hands on the hips. (laughs) Shannon's got her hands on her hips right now. I'm indignant. She's not happy about it. I look like a kindergarten teacher and I'm not pleased. (laughs) 
Not pleased about being a kindergarten teacher? No, I'm a displeased kindergarten <laughs> teacher. Got it. I'm very disappointed in all of you. Okay. I, I understand. And by all of you, I mean these investigators. Yeah. The investigations weren't really investigations at all. Or at least it didn't seem that way. I feel like a crime did not get truly legitimately solved until, like, 1997. <laughs> You know, like we we just barely in the last five seconds of human existence have figured out how to mostly get it together. Just been guesswork up until this point. I mean, reporters used to walk through crime scenes and like smoke and, and that's totally fair. All these things. Was that John Mulaney joke where it's like, clean up that blood over there? Now back to my hunch. <laughs> <laughs> right. Evidence. I don't want that. <laughs> all right. So. These instances, along with Jenny's own reticence to believe that the fire was hot enough to eliminate human remains entirely, gave the Sodders fuel for their own investigations. So many of the household appliances were still recognizable after the blaze. Fragments of their tin roof were found too. A similar house fire had killed a family of seven, which Jenny read about in a newspaper, and skeletal remains of the victims were reportedly found. Jenny even burned small piles of animal bones to see what it would take to make them ash. They never turned to ash, they only charred. She then contacted a local crematorium to give her answers to her questions, which I think was pretty smart on her part. Mm -hmm. So cremation furnaces are designed to use flames to create extreme heat, more than a normal house fire could. The temperatures can reach anywhere from around... 1,800 to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit to cremate one human body, depending on size. The average house fire burns at around 1,100 degrees Fahrenheit, which isn't hot enough to destroy most metals or natural substances like human remains. Normally, bodies will char and have extreme burns or even burn down to the bone, but the bone is what takes a very high temperature and at least two hours to burn to ash, depending on the size of the body. So the longer something burns, the more likely it is to burn completely. And the house only reportedly burned for at most an hour, from the account of Jenny waking up to when it collapsed and burned out. So there is possibility that it, like, smoldered for long enough to create that heat. You know how, like, when you get coals you hot enough? Fire, yeah. yeah. But... It's still, like, crematorium furnaces are very specially designed, and it's, I don't know why I know all of this, but I do. Um, (laughs) Don't ask questions. Don't ask questions. They're built so that they can basically contain the heat in a way that focuses it almost, Mm -hmm. and you, for the most part, can't burn more than one body at a time. One for, you know, just ethical reasons because you need to make sure that you know whose ashes are who yeah Um, that makes sense but also like because they they have done this before when 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 babies pass away or when they are Mm -hmm. born or stillborn they will have them in like separate Mm. like pieces so that they or spaces so that they can put them all into it at the same time and burn them down so that it goes a bit quicker because cremation is much more popular now than it was then. And so a lot of people end up being cremated now. Like me. I'm going to be cremated and made into a vase. I'm still sticking to that. You can... Uh, I Okay. So, Clark, 
babe, I know you know this, but what if I'm cremated and made into a vase, but you get cremated and shot into space, and then in the afterlife I can have a naked cat? (laughs) Can we do that? I'm not your husband. I know. You're my wife. I know. I cannot confirm or deny on behalf of Clark whether he would be interested in such an arrangement. Pretty sure he'd be like, um, I would like to go to space alive. Alive. And come back. Preferably alive. come back, yeah. The coming back part is the... Scary part. It's the thing. Clark. He signed up for the Virgin Galactic, like, lottery. He I wants have a- to go to space desperately. Look, I have a lot of feelings about billionaires building spaceships for their own use instead of, I don't know, helping with a lot of other problems on Earth, but... (laughs) That's it, period. (laughs) Like, I wanted to say, like, but I support you, Clark, if you get picked, and I'm like... Uh, but then but then Emma gets to get a naked cat, and then I'll have to deal with it when I go to visit you. Yep. I don't think I support it. <laughs> For a variety of reasons. Mostly the naked cat? Well, I mean, primarily the ethics of billionaires, but secondarily the naked okay. cat. Okay. Good to know. Me I'm and just... Penny will be like, what the heck is that thing? What the heck? I do wonder how Penny would react to a naked cat. I mean, she's barely met furry cats. I was going to say clothed cats. That's not what I wanted to say. They're not clothed. Ew! They're not clothed. I don't like it. That implies that fluffy cats can, like, remove it. (laughs) I don't like it. Yeah, exactly. All right. What? We got off on a tangent. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We're back. All right. So. Oh, right. Crematorium. Yeah. We were talking about cremation. But in any case, the idea that five children in a house fire no remnants of them would have been found mm-hmm. is very unlikely in the, in at least the scheme of right. how how bodies burn mm-hmm. just scientifically so the power line that was cut by the thief was actually the phone line cut from the pole up 14 feet and over 2 feet away from the pole so he like leaned he climbed up this pole and leaned over wow which is seems like a lot of work for a thief who was stealing something that he didn't even seem to use also, it's the middle of the night, so why would you need to cut the electricity? I get, you know, you don't want people to be able to get up out of bed and turn on the light to, like, see you, but... Yeah, and it's, it's from their serious. detached garage, so he's not even that close to... Right? The house? I don't know. I'm not quite sure what and the thought process Christmas? is. And since we don't actually know who... Yes, this person is even real. Yeah, so there's a little bit of that so too. Made up, exactly. What the heck? So the faulty wiring verdict of the coroner's inquest also didn't make sense, as if it was actually an electrical problem that caused the fire. The lights in the house wouldn't have stayed on. Jenny and George recalled the lights inside the house being on still when they fled, and they wouldn't have made it out of the house if they weren't able to be turned on. And as they watched the house burn at first, the family's Christmas lights on the house were oh, still on. Stop. Isn't that like the saddest image ever? Stop. No. I hate that image. Oh, I don't like it. It's so sad. Uh. So the missing ladder from the side of the house was found at the bottom of an embankment 
75 feet away from the house. What? Where no one in the family would have possibly had a reason to put it. Mm-mm. So obviously someone chucked it. Mm-hmm. Because that's... It, why? Why? There would be no reason for you to do that, especially if there was nothing that you were doing on the house that day. And if that's where he always kept it, mm-hmm. like, it's a big ladder. It's a ladder that goes up all the way or to the attic. it's not like it, like, blew away. Right? Right, yeah. So, it, it's just weird. The family trucks not being able to turn over may have been sabotage, as George believed, but it could also have been that in their haste, the boys and their father flooded the engines making it impossible to get the cars to start. They knew these cars well, but what we do in distress may make it harder to do what we normally would. Which is, it's fair. Mm-hmm. That's what um, one of the grandsons believes, because um, his dad was one of the um, older boys. And he he was basically like, it's just the thing that makes the most sense, because they were so frantic. Mm-hmm. Like, they were just trying to get things to work, because nothing was working, and they just were too frantic to yeah. make things start. The mystery call made at 12.30 to the Sauter home was eventually confirmed to be a wrong number. The woman was located, and she had been at a party and told the operator the wrong number. Mm. And she was just like, it was seriously like, I just had the wrong, she was drunk. She was Mm. like, I just had the wrong number, I'm so sorry. So evidence came in 1946 that the fire was not an electrical fault at all. Or at least... Yeah. Could possibly not be. Uh, no, the something hit the roof. Yes, it did. So, a driver of a bus passing through Fayetteville late on Christmas Eve told authorities that he had seen, quote, balls of fire, end quote, being thrown at the house. When the snow had melted in the spring and Jenny was tending the new garden on the site, Sylvia found a small, dark green, hard rubber object in the brush. Because of the rolling sound Jenny had heard on the roof right before the fire, George concluded that this was a napalm pineapple bomb used as an incendiary device in war. This evidence was not enough to conclude anything for the police, but interesting nonetheless, as it fueled the Sodder's hope of finding out what really happened. This seems very possible to me, mostly because it feels like a weird thing to make up or, like, misremember that something had hit and rolled off of your roof right in the middle of the night well especially paired with the sketchy life insurance salesman yeah yeah the Sodders hired cc tinsley who was a private investigator from golly bridge a nearby town (laughs) i'm over from golly bridge you know golly bridge G-A-U-L-E-Y, not G-O-L-L-Y, which is... Golly Bridge. Golly. The Gall. <laughs> there you go. Lee Bridge. <laughs> Golly Bridge. Uh. Yes, he had somewhere to put it. <laughs> Only you find that joke funny. <laughs> he found the information about the insurance salesman being a part of the coroner's inquest jury, as well as the rumor in Fayetteville that Morris, the chief had found a heart in the rubble and later put it in a metal box and buried it. What? Never telling the Sodders. What in the Snow White what? What in the Snow White what? I was going to say nonsense, but I already said nonsense earlier. (laughs) You can use nonsense as many times as you like. No, I cannot. I must use different word choices. (laughs) To prove my intelligence. I am a smarty pants. (laughs) 
Morris apparently had confessed this to his minister, that he had found a heart. George and Tinsley went to Morris to confront him, and Morris agreed to show them the heart. They dug up the box and brought it to a local funeral director. The director poked at it a bit and told them that it was a beef liver, relatively fresh and never exposed to fire. Another rumor was born from this that Morris afterwards admitted that indeed it hadn't come from the fire and that he had put the liver in the box and buried it in the hopes that the solders would find it and be satisfied that the children had died in the fire and find some relief. Okay, issue number one. What? Sir, issue number one. If you even thought that you like could claim to have found it on that day, what would make you not tell them? that day if your end goal was to make them feel satisfied that their children had passed and that they could move on. I don't understand that part. Number two, taking it from the quote, or you know, potential scene and putting it in a box and burying it would not necessarily be the smartest thing on the planet, I would think, especially since you're the chief of the fire department also how are they supposed to find it right and would that not be more traumatic especially finding it in a box would that not make it look more suspicious right you did not think this through sir no and then and when they're when they ask you hey did you do this and you go yeah and then you show them yeah like what? Why is your why is the person that you bring it to a funeral director and not maybe the coroner chief so that maybe there's some kind of governmental something or other that like can you can affer- like some form has got to say somewhere that I investigated this or suspected this or something and you can write it down well well I'm a, if it, even if it were on a form I think experience has taught us that the form would either be lost yeah Burned in a fire. Burned in a fire or a flood. Or a flood. (laughs) Destroyed in a flood. So it doesn't matter. It wouldn't be around today anyway. That's fair. I just, I don't, all of that, I just don't understand the reasoning behind it. At all. No. At all. Like there's just. Negatory. there's, There's nothing I can come up with for like a good reason for him to have done that. Because if it was to give them some relief. Wrong way, man. Wrong way. Maybe if you, like, investigated what happened. Yeah, don't just be like, don't touch it, and then never come back. (laughs) Well, I mean, it was four days, but it was still, like, you should investigate something fairly quickly afterwards. And this family is like, we have to find another place to live. We need to, like, figure out what happened to our children. At at that point, they were still thinking that their kids had died in the fire. Mm Mm-hmm. And, like, the rubble had been picked through, and they were like, well, we can't find them. There's nothing else here. We're just mm-hmm. going to put dirt over it and, and use it as a memorial space and a space for our family to grieve and basically as a grave site. Mm-hmm. This is a grave site now. Mm-hmm. And it's just, uh Ugh. Chief Morris, two thumbs down. Seriously. Jenny and George wrote to J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI in the hopes that he would be able to help them figure out who kidnapped their children, as they now believed that that was the most likely explanation, based on the fact that there were no remains found, and the likelihood of remains being found was very high, and it didn't happen. Hoover personally replied to them, saying, quote, Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. 
adding that if, end quote, adding that if the local authorities requested their assistance, that they would direct agents to the case. And the Fayetteville authorities never did. Mm. So I think that that maybe Fayetteville was like, this is a closed case. These are five kids. Like, the, you know, possibility of us finding them is Mm -hmm. low if they are being, if they had been kidnapped and, you know, our belief is that they perished in the fire. Like, they're thinking case closed, especially now that there are death certificates and, Mm -hmm. like, basically on paper the the kids are gone. In 1949, George persuaded Oscar Hunter, a D.C. pathologist, to supervise an excavation at the house site. The search was thorough and produced a dictionary of the children's, some coins, and some small bone fragments determined to be human vertebrae. These fragments were sent to the Smithsonian Institution and confirmed to be a lumbar vertebrae from the same person. It was determined that the individual would have been 16 or 17 years old at the time of their death, with a top limit range of 22 years old. Given the age range, the likelihood of these bones being from one of the Sauter children was minimal, as the oldest child missing, Maurice, was only 14, although the report did allow that sometimes a boy of his age could have bones that were advanced enough to show this kind of lumbar vertebrae fusion, but it was unlikely. However, these bones did not show any signs of exposure to flames, and the investigators said that it was very odd that the fire did not leave any other bones behind, as house fires notoriously leave behind full skeletons. Most likely, he said, the bones came from the dirt that George bulldozed over the site, and the bones were returned to the family. Hmm. So, that's just so sad, but it also completely confirms what we already know, is Mm -hmm. that the kids are not, they did not burn in that fire. They're Mm. not there. And if they were, we would have found them. I have a theory. You do? But I'll wait. (laughs) Okay. You got it? You're going to hold on to it? Oh, do you want me to say it now? No, it's fine. Okay. (laughs) All right. So the West Virginia legislature held two hearings on the case in 1950, but eventually told the Sodders that the case was hopeless and closed it. The FBI eventually decided to investigate, but dropped the case two years later with no more leads. So. J. Edgar Hoover. And they kind of tried. Yeah. Regardless, the Sodders didn't give up hope. No, they didn't. (laughs) They really didn't. They printed out flyers of the children, offering a $5,000 reward for information about even one of them, and it was soon doubled to incentivize people. In 1952, a billboard, which is now fairly famous, was put up at the site of the house and another along U.S. Route 60. It soon became a landmark. The billboard had blown up photographs of the children with their names and ages underneath and an explanation of what happened. A later version, so they had a couple iterations of this, but a later version read, quote, On Christmas Eve, 1945, our home was set afire and five of our children, ages 5 through 14, kidnapped. The officials blamed defective wiring, although lights were still burning after the fire started. The official report stated that the children died in the fire. However, no bones were found in the residue, and there was no smell of burning flesh during or after the fire. What was the motive of the law enforcers, of officers involved? What did they have to gain by making us suffer all these years of injustice? Why did they lie and force us to accept those lies? End quote. So they very much are no longer on the side of 
the police are right. going to help us. They are like, we have to do this ourselves. Right. So let's get into some sightings of the kids. So, of course, because there's it, when there are missing people, there's always a sighting. One woman, a neighbor, claimed that she had been watching the fire from the side of the road and had seen some of the children looking out of a passing car while the house was burning. She didn't recognize the car, but she recognized them. So obviously, if you're a neighbor and you see, you know, 10-ish kids running around, Mm-hmm. You, rec- you you recognize them. You know who they are. So that one I feel like is kind of credible, but I don't know when that Suspicious? report was given. So another woman, a waitress at a diner slash tourist shop 50 miles west of Fayetteville, claimed to have served breakfast to five kids on Christmas morning, but didn't recall how many adults were with them. She also said, quote, there was a car with Florida license plates at the tourist court, too. So she's remembering five kids, but I don't know how you don't remember anyone else. Mm-hmm. That's a little odd. There was a woman at a Charleston hotel who saw the kids' photos in the newspaper and claimed to have seen four of the five a week after the fire. She said, quote, The children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction. Mm-hmm. I do not remember the exact date. However, the entire party did register at the hotel and stayed in a large room with several beds. They registered about midnight. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to let me talk to these children. One of the the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. I sensed that I was being frozen out, and so I said nothing more. They left early the next morning. End quote. This story, however, is not considered credible by authorities because it was two years after the fire that she saw the photos and five years before she came forward with her information. Mm. Also, I feel like it could be confirmed based on, okay, so it was a week after the fire that you're claiming. In the logbook of who entered this Mm -hmm. establishment, what did you write down? What name did they give you? All of that. You'd be mm-hmm. able to find that because you would, would have written down what room they got. You know, mm-hmm. if they had several several beds and they had these kids, you would know. But nothing also, was done. I feel like with the billboards or the newspaper or, you know, the milk cartons from when you and I were kids. Yeah. Like, missing kids. I... The only way I'm going to recognize one of these kids is if it's someone I knew before they disappeared. Yeah. Or if it's someone who is, like, my neighbor and they're living under a different name. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I you would have to be work able to in a bookstore. I see, like, kids. I see people come through every day. And unless something very specific happened where I ended up spending a lot of time with a kid, like, I would not be able to say... You know what I mean? Like, if the FBI showed up tomorrow and was like, on Saturday, a parent... Like, kidnapped their kid in a custody thing. Did you see this man and this kid? I'd be like... I could not tell you. I'm so sorry. You can check the cameras. But you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it only works if that missing person, missing child, is in your orbit more frequently. Like, if you were a school teacher and then you saw on the news a photo, you'd be like, wait a second, that kid's in a class across the hall from me. Yeah, exactly. But it has to be within... At least for someone with my kind of memory... I'm 
I'm, I can recognize faces. I'm not great with names. I can recognize faces, but I'm also like, if I don't remember you, I don't remember you. Like, I don't, if I've never seen you before, I'm going to acknowledge that. Like, I'm not going to be like, oh, hey, like, we've definitely met. Like, no, we haven't. This is a cocktail party that I never wanted to go to in the first place, so I don't know who you are. Like, I, I don't think that I would be able to do that. Like, a milk carton kid, I would not be able to recognize them. Even when they do the whole age progression thing, they look, like, a little off or wonky, but they, like, older. Mm-hmm. Couldn't do it. Yeah. I couldn't do it. But, I mean, the hope is that somebody who has them in their orbit right. will them eventually. Right. But then I just mean, eventually. like, unless you're, li- you know, if this were a movie and this instance happened, this lady would be, like, reading the newspaper and then, like, the camera would pan and someone would, like, ding, ding the bell and she would, like, you'd be, yeah. the camera would be looking over her shoulder at the newspaper with the pictures of the children and then it would, like, close and you'd look up and there'd be, like, a man with, like, the kids behind. You know what yeah. I mean? But, yeah. Anyway, I agree. The timeline is suspicious that so she it, waited yeah. so long. And I think that because they didn't exactly, like, go through and try and make it so that they could, like, cross-check her, which I think they could have done. If they did, they didn't tell us. But I feel like it could have been done, but it just didn't happen. George saw a photo in the newspaper of some school children from New York City and convinced himself that one of them was his daughter, Betty. He drove to Manhattan in search of her, but when he arrived at the home, the parents refused to speak to him, which is totally fair. Strange mm-hmm. guy comes to your house, is claiming that your kid is his kid, but there's an instance of, like, you know, if you're going to be in town a little bit longer, how about me, the dad, or and the mom, like, we go and talk to you and figure out your story and all of this and show you some photos of her, all that. If you if you fully believe, because this is a nationwide thing now. Mm-hmm. People know that this happened and that these kids are missing in some right. capacity. So it's not as if this was unknown, but they were just like, no, you cannot, you cannot come in and this is our kid and no, go away. Can I tell you a story that's tangentially related? That's fine. You're the Viscount of Tangent Town. So. That's me. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you sent it to me. I sent it to you. Tell don't me. Know. And if that's true, you can cut this. But I saw a TikTok last night of this woman who she was like in her early 20s I think and she was almost nine months pregnant at the mall and this woman comes up and goes oh hi you're so-and-so right blah 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 she's like uh yeah hi and the woman's like that's my grandbaby and the woman is like, uh, sorry, you must have mistaken me for someone else. She's like, no, your mom's so-and-so so-and-so, right? She's my hairdresser. My son is going to adopt your baby. And this woman had, like, never. So her stepmom had been saying, like, oh, yeah, you and your partner can adopt my step-grandchild or whatever. And she's like, uh, No. Absolutely not. My daughter has never been up for adoption, nor is she now. And then apparently, I watched the part two, three, and four. Of course you did. (laughs) I went down the rabbit hole. Apparently, several months after the baby was born, this same woman saw them in Walmart and was like, that's my grandbaby. And then, like, the formerly pregnant lady 
she was with her mother-in-law at the time, and that that woman was like, "No, I'm the grandmother. You need to back it up." And I was just like, "That's wow. terrifying." Messy though. TikTok is fascinating, terrifying in equal measure. I but just that's what that, that's what made me think of it. If someone showed up on my front porch and was like, "You have my child," yeah. or like, um. Taking it back to the Tennessee Children's Home Society. Oh, yeah. They didn't know. So I guess maybe you're going to talk about it. But maybe these children ended up with families who, like, didn't know they still had. Mm Mm-hmm. We'll get to it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that is a possibility. But it's also, like, I'm thinking back now onto the Tennessee Children's Home Society of, like, you don't, they don't know where they come from. So how could they possibly, like, if they have, like, a traumatic memory of something, I think the only ones who would remember it are the 14-year-old and the, like, Mm -hmm. 9-year-old. Yeah. Whereas the other ones might be able to be convinced of it being, like, a... Moldable. Yeah. Like, oh, I am your mom. Exactly. So. A letter arrived from St. Louis from a woman who claimed that Martha, the oldest girl missing, was in a convent there. And nothing came of that. Someone in Florida claimed that the kids were staying with a distant relative of Jenny's there. And George went down and was like, you are, you know, Jenny's, you know, so-and-so cousin, whatever. And they were like, yes. And he was like, you have my kids. And he was like, what? No, no, we do not. And George was like, you have to prove to me that these children are your children. Because like, I mean, obviously he didn't see the kids to be Mm -hmm. like, that's my kid. He was like, please prove to me. Like, I'm literally just trying to find my kids so prove to me that these are your children and the guy was like okay weirdo like here are all of my kids and george was like okay and then left which is just so sad to be like show me your children they aren't my kids and then leave like it's a weird situation to be in i'm sure for him too of just like yeah that he must have felt so weird about it but like desperate enough to ask Mm mm-hmm In 1967, another tip came from Houston, Texas, where a woman claimed that Lewis had revealed his identity to her after having too much to drink one night. She believed that he and Maurice were living together somewhere in Texas. When George and his son-in-law, Grover Paxton, went down, however, they were unable to speak with her. Police helped them locate the men she had indicated, but the men denied being the missing sons. And they were, like, older at this point. They were, Mm -hmm. like, in their 30s. Or, like, 20s or 30s. Paxton said, however, that George doubted their denial, and it was on his mind for the rest of his life. Like, that they were, basically, that they didn't remember him, Mm. or that they were, like, trying to protect him or something, or that they were, like, we don't need you anymore, and so they were, like, no, we're not your kids. And, but George was like the possibility of it. Cause obviously you, you think that you know what your kids are going to look like when they're grown, mm-hmm. but obviously you can't know. Mm. So it's just this weird thing of like, I know what nine year old you looked like and yeah, you might have some features that, you know, match that, but mm-hmm. how can I know? Another tip that year brought the Sodders closer to believing that at least Lewis was still alive. A letter arrived to the Sodders with no return address, but postmarked from Central City, Kentucky. Inside was a picture of a young man, around 30, with this written on the back. Louis Sodder. I love brother Frankie. Ill little boys. I'm not sure what that means. And 
A90132 or A90135. They can't make it out based on the handwriting. The man in the photograph to both parents had such similar features to Lewis that they believed it instantly, so much so that the photo was added to the billboard they had erected as well as blown up over their fireplace. Like they just blew up a picture, a, a mm. version of it, and framed it and put it over their fireplace. They so believed this. George had personally investigated each of these tips, going to the state and town where they received them from. Another private investigator was hired and sent to Central City after the photograph arrived, but he never reported back, and the Sodders couldn't locate him afterwards. So they guessed that he just took the money and fled. George and Jenny both felt as though they kept hitting dead end after dead end, but never gave up hope. George later said, quote, If they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. End quote. Which I completely understand. Like, I, if, if you couldn't find my, my kids in a fire, like, what would I do to figure out what happened to them? I don't even know. I'd probably be dead. I'd probably die. <laughs> That's just, that's just what happens, apparently, is that I, I'm just, I, I'm apparently so lazy that I would die. <laughs> like, I would be in so much grief and pain, and then I'd be like, mm, death now. <laughs> and then cremate me and make me into a vase. All right, so, George passed away in 1969. Jenny and her other children, except for John, who wanted to grieve and move on, which I understand, continued to go after tips and seek answers for their questions regarding the night. Jenny wore black in mourning for the rest of her life and tended the garden until her death in 1989. After she passed, the family decided to take the billboard down. The rest of the Sodder children continued to publicize the case after their parents' death. Sylvia Sodder Paxton, the youngest, who was two when the fire happened, passed this year, 2021. She said that the fire was her earliest memory. She was also the last of the kids to leave home, remembering that she would often stay up with her dad and talk about their theories of what happened. She said, quote, I experienced their grief for a long time, end quote. She promised her parents that she wouldn't let the story die. That, uh, like, obviously it's very, very sad that these five children are missing, presumed dead by some. But also how traumatic for these remaining kids. Like, I feel like it's some supernatural, like, Winchester stuff of, like, it's the family business. Like, you don't get to have your own, like, normal life separate. Like, it's so You know what I mean? Like, I wonder, were any of them, like, can we just have a normal Thanksgiving dinner? Like, can we be present with the people that are here? Yeah, and I wonder, too, because all the kids got married, what were those weddings like? Yeah. Like, you know, it's a, it's a happy day for the person who's getting married, but your mom is now thinking about the fact that she was supposed to have five other weddings to go to. Right. She was supposed to have five other kids to enjoy the parties with, like, to, you know, have the grandkids. Yeah. So, it's just, it's sad. So, of course, there are some theories. One is that they were actually burned in the fire. Obviously, as I have said before, I don't believe this theory, and a lot of people don't either. There are some that do. Um, There's a lot of speculation online. Like, there are a lot of forums online that are like, 
they were just, you know, they were burned in the fire and that's the end of it. And this family just was so much in grief that they couldn't handle it. Mm-hmm. And they had to go and figure, like, make up stories about other things. But, I, no, I don't. Either they didn't do a thorough enough search, but then they did an excavation. So, like, they mm-hmm. obviously did a thorough enough search even afterwards, which you would have found bones then. If, right. If they well, were and there. the fact that they, they put dirt on the site, what, four or five days right after the fire... Like, that that would have preserved anything. Exactly. You know what I mean? Versus if they just left it out in the open, I feel yeah, like then the you would be, like, weather or animals or whatever. Exactly. But they, they sealed it up pretty quick. So... Yeah. It would have been there to be excavated. Yeah. So, I don't believe that theory. A lot of people don't. The next is that they were kidnapped. And there is two possibilities. One is that they were kidnapped by someone that they knew. Because otherwise the kids probably wouldn't have gone quietly. The whole house would have woken up, all of that. And then the fire was started in order to flush the rest of the family out or even potentially kill them. And that then the kids who were kidnapped were taken and either given to an orphanage and told that their family had died because they saw the fire as they were leaving. Like, we had saved you. Like, now you just have to live your life. But if this became, like, nationwide news... Why wouldn't they, you know, or somebody within their orbit have flagged it and been like, hey, your kids are here. Or, you know, if even if they were like scattered across the country, they would have been, you know, hey, we're, we're over here, mom and dad, we miss you, sorry, we thought you were dead, that kind of thing. So there has to be an incentive for them not to speak up if they were still alive. And the other possibility is that the mafia took them. Because the mafia is always around when there's something too nefarious going down. So most of the locals in Fayetteville, and even some of the Sodder children, believe this theory of the mafia kidnapping the kids. George had been recruited by the local mafia, but he had declined their offer. They tried to extort money from him, and he again refused. And he was fighting over his opinion that Mussolini was not great at all, all over town. The thought was that the fire was started, the children taken by someone they knew still, like it, it was still somebody in the neighborhood, in the community, um, and then told either that their family had perished or that they would be, like they would be killed if they tried to contact their family. That either they would be killed or that their family would be killed if they tried to contact them. And in that, they were either shipped off to Italy to try and get them out of the U.S., uh, None of this would hit them or interest them or, you know, get them to pipe up. And because they were young enough, you could very easily be like, here you go, grandma, take care of this five-year-old. Like, you know, do all that. Mm -hmm. And then they would have a harder time contacting their family, too. I feel like it's also with younger kids, it's easier to just be like, oh, you're just telling stories. You're you're not. It was just a a nightmare. What you're talking about isn't real. Yeah. Gaslighting children is very easy. But there was also that or the possibility of of scattering them across the states with the thought that, hey, if you tell anybody, we'll kill you or your family. Mm -hmm. Well, and if you're not together, too. It's like, oh, 14-year-old, if you talk, your Your five-year-old sister sister in Montana gets it, yeah. 
The other possibility is that, yes, they were kidnapped, but they still are not around anymore. That they died that night by some other means. In kind of like a retaliation thing, mafia-wise, or just in a horrible person deciding that they needed to die for some reason. Um, And that's why they haven't surfaced. So... Yeah, that's the sad, sad story of the Sodder family mystery. Sorry, y'all, for the downer. (laughs) Okay, you want to know my theory? I really, really do. I mean, you've already kind of talked about it, but I feel like I agree with, what was it, option, like, 2B. Okay. So, I feel like it's clearly politically motivated. Mafia potential. But I feel like, and granted, this is mostly just from pop culture, but I feel like Italians, as a culture, yes, there's some toxic masculinity at play, but there's also, on kind of the flip side of that, of, like, respect women and kids. Because the only people on the, like, because it was, what, it was the, this, no, maybe she went to bed. The 17-year-old was on the couch. Yes, she was asleep on the couch. She was on the couch. Was she missing? Nope. Okay. So she's on the couch. Mom and dad and the two-year-old and then the two oldest boys that weren't at war were on the second floor. So it was all the little kids upstairs. Yes. So I think they were like, we're going to take out this family and the older ones are like old enough to deserve it or, you know, if they get out of it, then okay. But they were like, oh, we'll save the innocents. So they took the little ladder and they took the kids out. And I don't know. Maybe the fact that it was Christmas, you could, like, convince little kids to come with you for magical Let's reasons. Let's go find Santa or yeah, something. Yeah, or something. Or, like, we're going to surprise mom and dad with a big Christmas thing, but you have to come with me. So they got the little kids out of there and then they threw their... Napalm. Pineapple bombs. <laughs> their pineapple bomb up on the roof. With the intention of taking out the rest of the family. Yeah. And then, you know, hopefully it would be the just relocating the kids. And like you said, they if they saw the fire, if that neighbor lady, like... Really saw them. Saw them in the car while the fire was happening, then you could easily tell the little kids that their, their family was gone. So... Yeah. Well, and I find it interesting that the night of... Marion and all of the younger kids that were missing were the ones who were awake and downstairs. Mm -hmm. And the door was unlocked. The door was unlocked. The lights were still on and the curtains were not drawn. So you could see straight into the house. So So at the time that Jenny went downstairs, it was like 1230 when the phone rang. Mm -hmm. And she noticed that that the lights were on, the doors unlocked and all that. But what I find interesting is that Marion was still on the couch when the fire started. Mm-hmm. Marion would have been up in that room with the kids right. if she had gone to actual bed. Mm-hmm. So she didn't often sleep on the couch. Mm-hmm. What made her fall asleep on the couch? Was she just exhausted from it being Christmas Eve and she had worked during the day and she just fell asleep and forgot to lock up or did she fall asleep while the kids were still downstairs and the eldest ones who were still awake 
um, the 14-year-old probably, was just like, let's all go upstairs and, and go to bed, and had done their chores and forgot to lock the door, mm-hmm. and didn't really, you know, do any of the other things, because they're still kids, like, they're still really young. Right. So, I, that's a weird thing, but there's also what I think is a good possibility, is that they never went upstairs at all, mm-hmm. and that Marion fell asleep, and because the door was unlocked, whoever was going to be throwing napalm bombs was like, wait, the windows are open, the lights are still on, we can't do anything yet, people are still awake, and they, like, mm-hmm. looked in the window, and they were like, oh, it's just the kids, and thought, you know, let's get let's get some of the kids out of there, they don't deserve this, the youngest one's five, like, they didn't do anything. Right. Um, and then, like, tried the door, and it was open, and then pulled a, either, like, tricked them, or was like, oh my gosh, a fire, like, let's get out, quick. Right. And, like, don't, you know, don't worry about Marion, we'll grab her, we'll get her, and then, like, shuffled them into a car and left, mm. and then started the fire. Um, in that by the time that Jenny came downstairs, the kids were already gone. Right. They weren't even in the house. Because she assumed that they had gone up to bed. Right. But what if they had but never gone up to bed like, at all? she didn't, hear them or anything. No. And then, I guess in that case, they would have moved the ladder and, like... Yeah. Just to... More Mess ang- with them. Like, yeah, more anguish if, or, they, if or they didn't make it through. Make them think that, oh, the kids died in the fire, that's why you can't find them. Right. That's why you yeah. can't get to them. That's yeah. why they're not answering your, your calls when you when you are screaming for them to come downstairs. Right. Um, and there was an instance where John, the eldest boy in the house, had claimed, I, like, tried to get up the stairs to get them, and I couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Like, even if he had made it up there, would he have even seen them? Or would they have been in their beds and he would have been able to save them? Like, what was right. what was the instance that was going on here? Um, so, I, I tend to believe that the kids weren't in the house by the time that Jenny came down at 1230. I think maybe while the boys were outside doing their chores, that might have been an instance where they were like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, quick, like, let's go. Right. Um, or maybe even, like, you know hand over mouth, like, get them in the car. Yeah. Um, especially for the older ones. I fe- have a feeling. Were the cows put away? They never ne- mentioned anything of that. Mm. I think within all of the, like, frantic yeah. haste of trying to figure out what was happening with the house, they didn't even notice anything about the mm. animals. Mm. Or they, you know, went to set them free in order to make sure that the barn didn't catch either. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I think that it was mafia-related. I think that the kids were kidnapped. I think that... The kids have the paintings from the Isabella <gasps> Stewart Gardner Museum. But they can't say anything. Because they're not even supposed to be alive. <laughs> they can't get the reward because they don't have a social security number. Yeah, they were all moved. they were all moved to Boston. They were all just, like, taken in by Boston... Italian they mafia. They were trained to be art smugglers <laughs> repelling from the ceiling. <laughs> I like it. Well, yeah, it's been on the list since the beginning. It has. It was one of the first unsolved mysteries that I even ever really learned about. It was, of course, the saddest ones always are. It was this and Maura Murray that really got me started in, like, unsolved mystery stuff. So. Yeah. Yeah, it is sad, um, 
In any case, they probably, regardless of whether or not they lived past the fire, are probably not around still today to Mm. pipe up about anything. But, um, you know, if they ever had kids or married anybody. Or, yeah, I wonder if DNA testing is going to reveal something in the future. Yeah. I really hope so. 23 and me. I really hope so. All right, friends. Well, thanks for sitting through this really sad one. Check the batteries in your smoke detectors. Please. Um, Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening, Shannon. You got it. And remember. This podcast doesn't exist. Good tea, good tea, good tea. Crisp. Crisp tea. Crisp tea. Crisp rat. (laughs) Ha ha ha!